Okay, if you have a Bible, we're starting a new series this week called Upside Down. God's goal for God's provision. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19 this week. Luke chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. This is God's word. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was there a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see them, see him for He was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and saved the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, would you take your word now and use it to change our hearts? Surprise us by what you might do, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. At Trinity, we want to show that grace changes everything. That's our mission. But we can't, as a church plant, we can't as a people, we can't as God's people gathered in this place called Owasso, we can't begin to really let grace change everything until we have a very honest talk about what may in this culture be the most personal of subjects. Every one of us thinks about money, how much we have or don't have, how we're going to spend it, Almost all the time. And yet we cannot talk about it in public except in the most generic of ways. And so if we are going to be a church where grace changes everything, wouldn't it be appropriate for us to take a short series and talk about how grace and money work together? The Family Research Institute just came up with a study not too long ago that said that lying in your marriage about money is as destructive to that marriage as if one spouse committed adultery against the other. If grace is going to change everything, then it's appropriate for us to talk about this very personal subject, but yet Jesus himself talks about it 15% of the time. Every 
the 15% of all Jesus said was not just indirectly referencing money. It was directly related to this. So, not to belabor the point, but over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about the gospel and money. We're going to go from the specific to the broad, from the particular to the generic, from one bottom line to multiple bottom lines. Are you ready? And so, we're going to have our priorities turned upside down, beginning with the story with Zacchaeus. In this famous story of Zacchaeus, you're going to see three things. You're going to see the power of money, the power of grace, and what happens when those two things come together. The power of money, the power of God's grace, and what happens when grace and money meet. So point number one, the power of money. The story of Zacchaeus is a very famous story. It has dawned many a felt board in Sunday school classes through the ages. We love how concrete it is. You know, you've got the crowd. You've got, you know, you've got the tree. You've got the short little dude named Zacchaeus who can't see. And there is a sense in which Luke wants this story to be for his hearers. Very, very concrete, but not in the way that we probably learned it in Sunday school. Notice, notice what Luke says about Zacchaeus. Why couldn't Zacchaeus see God? Why was Zacchaeus blocked from seeing Jesus? Well, it was because, Pastor, he was short. Yes, but Luke wants you to notice something. It's not merely that he was short. Notice that if you're short and you're in a crowd, many of us know this, if you're in a crowd, a parade, if you're short, what do you say to the people who are in the front? You say, excuse me, do you mind if I sit? Can I sit? And they'll let you through. But Zacchaeus didn't have that privilege, did he? It says that the crowds blocked him out. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And that means that he made his living by extortion. Do you know what extortion it means? You take other people's money. He was in with the Roman government. They had handpicked this man to be a tax collector for them, which means that he goes around and he ekes out of people every last penny of tax. And not only was he a tax collector, but it says that he was the chief tax collector, which means that he makes his living off the extortion of people directly, but also like a grand pyramid scheme. He makes people... He makes money off the people underneath him who are collecting taxes under his authority. And the only way Luke knows how to describe this is to say he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And most commentators, when they study Luke 19, they make a very interesting point that here is a man named Zacchaeus who is of small stature, who may not be well... um, Small stature may mean he's short. It also may mean he was funny to look at. Here's a man who is not physically that um, attractive. And yet he had been given the authority of Rome to collect taxes. And over time, Zacchaeus had won people's authority and respect because of the legal system of Rome. And so he's used to, when he goes to parties, everybody looks at him. There's Zacchaeus, the rich tax collector. And for his entire life, his entire career at least, he had lived under 
the respect of the Roman law. So now when there's a public parade to see this man named Jesus, Zacchaeus, this rich tax collector, whose money had always gotten him to the front row, now tries to push through the crowd to see, and they block him out. And the point that Luke is trying to make is that Zacchaeus, though he was rich, was an absolute cultural outsider. That Zacchaeus had always thought that money was what got him in. It got him into the right clubs. It got him into the right friends. But the truth is that actually he was outside. And maybe this experience for Zacchaeus was the first time In many years, he was actually on the outside looking in. Have you ever thought about that? Look, we we all know that money can be a solution to many of your problems. But you know what? Money can also be a perfectly good problem to your solutions. Luke wants to make the point, and he repeatedly makes this point in the gospel about those who have money. That money has an illusory power. That's the first thing you learn about the power of money. It's an illusory power. It's an illusion, which means that it promises what it cannot provide. Wealth is supposed to get you in. And here Zacchaeus is on the outside. Remember the, the Pharisees in Luke 16. Remember when Luke describes them, he says, now the Pharisees, those were the religious conservatives, by the way. The Pharisees, who were lovers of the law, No, 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 he doesn't say lovers of the law. Lovers of rules, though they were, that's not how he describes them. Lovers of morality? No, in Luke 16, 14, uh, Luke says the Pharisees, the religious conservatives, the lovers of money. Even the religious conservatives of Luke's day knew that wealth provided you a certain umph in society. It got you into conversations. He got you into the clubs. Zacchaeus here thinks he's in. Money and the power that it promises is an illusion. Some of us think, well, if I can only win the lottery, you have no idea how much help that. Well, you know what? Laura and Robert Griffith did win the lottery, and they hardly ever argued until they won $2.76 million. And so what did they do? Well, Robert and Laura decided that they would cash in. And so they built this beautiful million-dollar home. It's gorgeous. And then Robert bought a Porsche. And then within 18 months, their marriage fell apart, and Laura drove away in that Porsche. Money can be the solution to many of our problems, but money... And those of you who have it know that money can also be a problem to many good solutions. This was true of Andrew Carnegie. You remember who Andrew Carnegie was, the great steel master, the great, he was the wealthiest man in the early 20th century in the world. Andrew Carnegie on New Year's Eve in 1868 was reflecting on his life and he wrote in a journal this. He wrote, I propose to take an income no greater than $50,000 per year. Beyond this, I need never earn. Make no effort to increase my fortune, but spend the surplus each year for benevolent purposes. Let us cast aside business forever, except for others. 
Listen, man must have an idol, young Carnegie wrote. And amassing the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. Now, I, I well recognize that whenever preachers talk about money, you think, oh, sheesh, here he goes, pour on the guilt. And, and frankly, I can't really defend against that because that's true. That's what a lot of people do. But I can only just, just trust me, okay? Lean into this and trust me. Carnegie continues, to continue much longer, overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time, must degrade me beyond the hope of permanent recovery. What's interesting about Andrew Carnegie, even in 1868, is that after he sold his company, his little steel company, to a man you may have heard of called J.P. Morgan, he despaired, wishing to live his life over again. Because Andrew Carnegie even as the richest man in the world. When he was a little boy in England, he always wanted to be part of the aristocracy. He wanted to be part of the lords and the ladies of England, and he never could get in. So after he sells his company, he devotes his life to reading because even though he was the wealthiest man in the world, he was not a well-educated man. And his cultural night. Uh, naivete caused him to always be an outsider in the one circle of influence he always wanted to tap into, but he couldn't. And money never provided that entrance for him. Money for Carnegie was more than just a medium of exchange. When he was 33, he wanted to make war on it because he hated what it did to him. Money promises to give you something that it can't. It can't get you on the inside. Now, the best illustration of wanting to be on the inside of something comes from an essay that I've, I've talked about. It, but if you've been around Trinity very long, you've heard me mention it several times. An essay by C.S. Lewis called The Inner Ring. And he describes this phenomenon better than anything I've ever read because the power of the inner ring is not just about belonging to something that you're not yet a part of. It's about a lust to be in, to be accepted. Lewis writes, my main purpose in this address is simply to convince you that this desire, the desire to be in, is one of the greatest permanent mainsprings of human action. And you must take measures to prevent it. This desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life from the first day on which you enter your profession until the day when you are too old to care. That will be the natural thing. That life will come to you of its own accord and other kinds of life, if you lead it, will be the result of conscious and continuous effort. And if you do nothing about it, if you drift with the stream, if you become part of the status quo, you will, in fact, be an inner ringer. I don't say you'll be a successful one, that as may be, but whether by pining or moping outside of rings that you can never enter or by passing triumphantly further and further in, one way or the other, you will be that kind of man. In other words, no matter 
if you desire to be among the most well-known in the state or in this region or the most well-known in your field, although those are great desires, those are noble in and of themselves. You have an insatiable desire to be in. And you have to recognize that. It may not be large lighted rooms or champagne glasses, Lewis writes. It could be the sacred little attic or the studio or the tool shed where heads are bent together and fogs of tobacco smoke fill the air with the delicious knowledge that we, the four or five of us huddled around this table, are all the people who know. Our problem is not just an illusory problem, our problem with money, but money has a negative power. That is that money tends to bring out the worst in us first because of the promise that it dangles before us, but yet it can't provide. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. The love of money is the root, verse 10, of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The first thing you see about money is that it has an illusory power. The second thing is it has a negative power. It tends to bring out the worst in us before it brings out the best. If we're not led by the gospel. That's the power of money. Now, the power of grace. I'll quit beating up on money for a second. And don't think for a second that money is intrinsically bad. It's not. Some of you are well-to-do, and you should not feel guilty about that at all. And if you feel guilty about it, as I'll say in a little bit, then you don't yet know the gospel. Because it's an incredible gift. But what about the power of grace? Those who have had an experience of grace know that the way of salvation goes exactly the opposite way that you learned money and success in the world. Commentators say that Zacchaeus couldn't see God because he was a cultural outsider, but they also say that he couldn't see God because he was a moral outsider. He was an extortion. He's a thief. And notice what happens when Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down now. I'm going to stay with you. In the ancient Near East, that was another way of saying, I am equal with you. And I want to know you. And I want to share my life with you. It wasn't just, I need a place to stay. You got a good pad. It was, I want to know who you are. And the crowds saw this in Zacchaeus. They saw this in Jesus' response. And you know what they said to Zacchaeus? Jesus is going to be with a sinner. It wasn't that he was short. It was that Zacchaeus was a cultural outsider longing to be in, and he was a moral outsider. And you see in Zacchaeus, in this moral outsider, and the response of the crowd, I think two of the reasons why people in Owasso don't believe the gospel. There are a group of people in town who, it's their pride. They don't believe the gospel because... I don't believe, that's voodoo stuff. I don't believe in Christianity. Give me a break. Have you listened to what those preachers say? 
I'll go at it on my own. I'll take my chances. That was Zacchaeus' take before the sycamore tree. Or there's the response of the crowd, which I actually think is more part of my problem and Owasso's problem in general. The second reason why people in this town don't become Christians is because of the self-righteous, judgmental, condemnatory attitude of professing Christians. People who abuse the word sinner. And here Jesus comes around the corner and he passes all the people on the front row, all the religious conservatives, and he looks over and he sees up in the tree a man, not just any man, a man who's in a tree, which means that he's up there probably not by himself. There's probably the poor and the dejected and the mar- everybody in that town who couldn't get a front row seat. They cl- the poor climb trees. The marginalized climbed trees because they couldn't be near there. And so here's Zacchaeus, this wealthy tax collector amongst people who probably don't own very much. And Jesus looks up at this tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. And Zacchaeus is blown away. Jesus says, I want to come into your life, Zacchaeus. I want you to come into me. I want you to be in me. I want to share your house. I want you to come into mine. I want to be your company. When you compare the way Jesus responded to people who were self-righteous, the religious conservatives, to people who were the sinners, who does Jesus always give preference to? The Pharisee or the prostitute? He chooses the prostitute. The Samaritan or the Jew, he chooses the Samaritan. The political collaborator soldier or the religious dude, he chooses the political collaborator. Martha and Mary, he chooses Mary. And here's the diagnostic question for us. One of the ways you can tell if somebody's been transformed by the gospel is how they use the word sinner. People who, um, who are self-righteous, they tend to have two different kinds of people. You know, they have the sinners, and then moi. And you remember in Luke chapter 11, after Jesus, is, Jesus teaches his disciples about the Lord's Prayer, and he says to them, you being evil, if you being evil, know how to good good." Give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit? Listen, Jesus uses the sinner the exact opposite way the world uses the word sinner. He uses it to sweeten your life and to teach you that there is no moral difference between you and the worst sinner imaginable. And that's what Zacchaeus is so taken back by. Jesus calls out to him when he's sitting amongst the poor in the trees. What kind of God is this who looks at someone and says, sinner, so there's no difference. The only difference between a saved person and an unsaved person is the saved person knows that there is no moral difference between them and the unsaved person. Are you with me? And Zacchaeus is blown away by this fact. 
The only difference between this is that there's no difference. That God loves you. That he doesn't weigh you by your performance because every one of us would fail the performance test. And one of the ways you can tell between a believer and a non-believer, no matter whether they go to church or not, no matter how faithful they are, is by the way they use the term sinner. Is it, does it sweeten your life? Or do you use it as a bat to remind people that they're not quite as good as you are? The requirement for the gospel, friends, is that you cannot meet the requirements. The great thing is to see that you cannot do a great thing. The good news about the good news is that you cannot do anything good, but Jesus does it for you. And he calls out to you and says, I want you, I want to come into your, I want to be with you. And when Zacchaeus sees this, it changes his life. Do you know what that's called? When God shows you that there's no difference between the outsider and the insider to him, that's called grace. And it changes everything, and it turns your world upside down. Unlike the negative power of money, grace is a positive power, and it comes to us freely. It is the only way. Don't you see why? Now finally, what happens when these two things come together? Grace changes Zacchaeus' attitude toward money. It turns his priorities upside down. Notice what Zacchaeus does. Notice first his actions. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give away 50% of my income this year. Well, wait a minute. I thought the Old Testament said 10%. Well, yeah. He's going way beyond the requirement, isn't he? And then he says, if I've cheated anyone, and he had, I'm going to pay them back. But if you go to Leviticus 27, you see that the payment to people you've wronged is 20%. So you should give them 120%. Here Zacchaeus gives them 400%, four times what they owed him. Way past the requirement. And then look at his attitude. Immediately after being saved, what does Zacchaeus start talking about? Jesus did not ask him about his money. But immediately he talks about it. He immediately applies the gospel. And secondly, he joyfully and very intentionally worships the Lord with his money. And notice the way that Zacchaeus talks to Jesus. He says to Jesus, Behold, Lord. It's like a little kid saying to a mom or dad, Look, mom. Look, dad. It's not that they want your attention. It's that, it's that they probably want you to see that they're making a connection about your world that, you, that they think you'll be proud of. It's like when a little kid learns to ride a bike. Look how I can do a wheelie. Just look. They want, to, they want you to see how they're making connections. Zacchaeus says, Look, Lord. Look. I've made a connection. I've got a great idea that I think would give you pleasure. And Zacchaeus realizes that he, for the first time in his life, is freed up to be God's money manager and to not always be counting nickels. Zacchaeus realizes that everything he has is God's anyway. It's God's. 
It's like last week. On Tuesday day, I had a tree service come and trim my trees. And I spent a lot of money to trim my trees. And if I would have just waited four hours, God would have done the job for me. And I was pretty ticked, honestly. And then I, it's God's money. He can spend it how he wants. It didn't make sense to me, God, but I trust you. Zacchaeus realizes that he is God's money manager. And the expression of our freedom in the gospel is a radical generosity. And Zacchaeus uses it to help the poor and to restore relationships. Well, you say, well, he's given it because he feels guilty. He's wronged all these people. No, 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 no. People who feel guilty give everything back. If you steal a bicycle, you give the whole bike back. You don't just give like two wheels and some spokes and a chain. Zacchaeus doesn't feel guilty. He gives 50% to the poor. He doesn't give everything back. He's not guilty because he's rich. He's using it to serve his king. Do you see that? If he was feeling guilty, he would have given 90 to 95% back. But he's not afraid of being well off. He just has a completely and totally different worldview about money. And it turns him upside down. Wait, didn't the rich young ruler have to give 100% back? And here Zacchaeus only gives 50? Wait a minute. I thought that in the Old Testament tithe it was 10%. Wait, I'm, I'm, I'm really confused. One of the reasons why we get confused about how much money we're supposed to give away is because you're looking for rules. And Jesus is inviting you into an adventure, friend. You're looking for principles, and he's inviting you into a pilgrimage. What must I do? What do I have to do, Jesus? Just give me the requirements. But Zacchaeus shows us that when you get the freedom of the money through an experience of grace, you say, I cannot wait for some way to push past the requirements and to give and give and give and to heal people and to nurture my community and help it flourish. I'm going to follow Jesus no matter where it will lead me. Listen, maybe you give a lot. Maybe you will give a lot after this sermon. Maybe you won't be well off anymore. You're going to give away so much of your income. Maybe you'll stay wealthy. Maybe it will be 50%. Maybe it will be 20%. Maybe 10%. Who knows what it's going to be? But listen, Zacchaeus is a brand new Christian, and he makes this connection. How much more are those of us who have tasted the sweetness of divine grace and have been walking in the knowledge and the love of Jesus for years are still asking Jesus, what must I do just to be right with you? 8%? 10%? 2 What works? An experience of grace frees you to recognize that you are God's money manager. It is not your money. And some of you are saying, all right, okay, I get it, I get it. But you have no idea what our finances are like. I don't have that kind of freedom. And frankly, you may not. And some of you are in debt, and you need to get those debts paid off. That is, that is very important. 
And I don't care what you give. I don't even know who gives in this church. And this is not a sermon about trying to get you to give more money. It's a sermon about trying to invite you into a pilgrimage to experience the joy of giving. This is not about Trinity meeting her budget. That, the Lord will take care of that. And he'll probably use you to do it. But if you say, giving 10, 20, or 50% of my, is ridiculous, you, you have not had an experience of grace. If you think that's impossible, it may mean that you're not yet a Christian, that the gospel has not come in. Everything you have is the Lord's. Or maybe you're thinking, all right, man, Blake, you're really starting to make me feel guilty. Listen, if you're feeling guilty about this sermon, then you haven't experienced the freedom of the gospel either. Do what Zacchaeus did. Go climb a tree. Just get a look at Jesus to see how much he has done for you. Do whatever you need to do to get a glimpse of him. When you look at Jesus, you'll see Jesus who was rich for your sake becoming poor. You'll see the ultimate insider becoming for our sakes an outsider so that we can know the extent of God's love for us, of his love for you. You'll see a father who emptied his pockets of his most treasured possession, that of his one and only son, so that you could be brought into the inner ring, the inner ring that we lost in the Garden of Eden when we walked with God. Lottery winners, they often miss it. And it makes their life worse. Andrew Carnegie was wiser when he was 33 than when he was 63 because he did not live up to that vow. And why couldn't he? Because it takes more than willpower. Willpower will not cut it. You've got to get up in a tree. You've got to see who Jesus is. And you can't do this by yourself. Listen, I don't know what it's going to be for you. I don't know if it's going to be 50%, 20%, 10%. I don't know. And frankly, I don't care. But I want you to be on the adventure of joyful giving like Zacchaeus. And if grace is going to change everything, do you let it change the way you view your resources financially? The way to do that this week is to get together with your spouse or to sit down with a roommate and to think through your budget. You cannot do this well alone. In fact, I don't think families actually can do this very well alone, but it's very personal, so it's hard for families to talk across families. But you need to get together with other people. And I challenge you, husbands and wife, this week, just pray about it. Look at your budget and say, what would the Lord be calling us to experience? Let's get up in a tree together and see what he might do. Sit down, be like Zacchaeus, be joyful and be very intentional. The power of money has most of us in a wasso by the throat. And the only way to get out from under this incredibly negative power of money is to understand your wealth. And we are all wealthy in this room, by the way. Understand your wealth in respect to stewardship that God has given you as his money managers. Get up in a tree. 
see Jesus, and who knows what he's going to do in you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll help us to be good stewards of your money. The way we handle money is often the most accurate diagnosis of our hearts. I pray this for me. I pray this for my family. I pray this for every one of us in here. Lord, help us to be joyful and intentional, not burdened by guilt, but to see how much the gospel wants to change our life and then to help us experience the joy and being your money managers. We pray, Lord Christ, that you will show us how we too can experience grace as Zacchaeus did and turn our priorities upside down. In Jesus' name, amen.